Welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. And today's episode will be with uh, uh, with someone who is very special, someone whose paper I, re I read at the very beginning of my academic career, negotiating with Romans, uh, has, uh, has, um, has made a great impact on me and on my career. This is how my adventure with negotiation uh, started. Uh, he's a negotiation professor as, uh, at uh, Schulich School of uh, Business. Uh, at York University in Canada. Uh, he, uh, he has spent decades thinking about what is actually ne international negotiation and how to master, uh, uh, master them um, successfully. Steve Weiss. Steve, great to have you with us. Nice to be here. <laughs> Steve, uh, you've had a, a, an extremely rewarding career uh, in international, in the field of negotiation, especially in the, uh, focusing on international negotiation. I was, uh, I, I, I'm always um, curious about how such journeys start. Could you share your story? How did uh, your adventure with negotiation start? It's a combination of, of fate, luck, and I guess persistence or passion. So the, the international part was preordained. Uh, my parents and I went to Japan when I was five months old and I spent 10 years there. So international and cross-cultural um, experiences and interests were in my blood from the, from the get-go. <clears throat> um, the negotiation part, that's probably where a, a lot of the luck uh, came in. Um, when I was in uh, college, I was majoring in international affairs which was very broad. It was a, a collection of, of government history, economics, uh, and foreign language courses with no real focus. And I took a course in the religion department on war and peace, uh, war and peace literature. So we read books like John Hersey's uh, Hiroshima and remarks, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front and so on. And remember, this was the early 70s. Uh, so this is when the uh, resistance to uh, uh, the US's participation in the Vietnam uh, War was really starting to rise. Um, and, and part of sort of the, the zeitgeist. And we would be watching uh, on the nightly news the body count of American soldiers, of Vietnamese soldiers, of Viet Cong. And I think somewhere in there, I was thinking, what, what a, a lousy way to try to resolve a conflict or disputes, uh, you know, to, to basically kill each other. So there was that sort of going on in the back of my head. And then this course on, on war and peace was fascinating. And what came out of it was a desire within international affairs to focus on conflict and conflict resolution. Um, I also, uh, to, to finish up college early, needed a couple of extra courses to take um, and was in the college library browsing through summer school brochures and happened upon the summer school and peace research, which was a uh, three week, I think it was three week resident program up here in Canada. And I'm an American, <laughs> this wasn't a natural. Um, and it was sponsored by the Canadian Peace Research Institute. Uh, I came up here, participated in the course. Uh, and once again, that just reinforced this, this idea of 
focusing in on conflict and conflict resolution, it, it really captured my interest. Um, I thought it was just a, a really interesting phenomenon as well. If you think of people from very different backgrounds and cultures trying to develop something together in collaboration, and there's just all sorts of ways that dynamic uh, could go. Um, and uh, then after college, was trying to figure out what to do, and I applied to schools in foreign uh, service or diplomacy, law schools, and there was a, a unique program at the University of Pennsylvania called the Peace Science Unit, which had been created in the 60s by Walter Isard, with help from Kenneth Boulding and, and others. Uh, and the, the name turned some people off, but basically what Isard wanted to do was simply use social science methods to study war and peace. There were a lot of peace studies programs and softer uh, courses and programs in the 70s, and, but he wanted to use rigorous methods to, to study the subject. I was accepted there. We were able to do, it was a small program, so we could pretty much do what we wanted to do. I focused in on international negotiation. Um, and uh, that was also the time when Dan Druckmann wrote his first book on social psychological aspects of negotiation that came out in the 70s. And, and Brown and Rubin's book on social psych came out in the mid 70s and so on. So a lot of this stuff was developing and I took advantage of it. I know this is a long answer. I'll, I'll take one more minute. The other thing that was terrific about being in at Penn was Philadelphia was in many ways considered the mecca of alternative dispute resolution in the 70s. So there was a branch of the American Arbitration Association there and a lot of the um, professors at the Wharton Business School were serving as arbitrators in labor uh, in, in, in arbitrations. I sat in on those. There was a federal mediation and conciliation service one of the regional centers there, and they were they were mediators for labor management disputes. I got to know the mediators and followed them around and sat in on negotiations. Quakers had um, mediation training and, and so on. So I did a fair amount outside of campus on conflict resolution generally, in addition to my coursework. Uh, and then the final piece, which was just a luck of the draw, is I, I, a conference I'd met a, a consultant who was teaching international business negotiation at, at NYU, at New York University. Um, and uh, at the end of our meeting, she said, you should get a hold of me sometime. And here's my number. And I, I called her once and there was no answer. I called her twice. There was no answer. And I pretty much thought I'd give up, but I gave it one more shot. <laughs> And she answered. <laughs> and as a result of that call, she said, why don't you come up and serve as a teaching assistant at the business school up at NYU on the course uh, in international business negotiation that I'm teaching. And that worked itself into an offer to teach there full time. And that's when I made the jump from international negotiation more generally into international business negotiation. Um, so that the, that's a, a series of sort of lucky lucky uh, opportunities or occasions. And then the third piece, just, you know, making myself available and then going after opportunities when they came up, what, 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 which is what my dad would call sort of serendipity. That was one of the serendipity. Um, You know, opportunities come up and if, if you're willing to, to go for it, 
you know, then, then that's another piece of the puzzle. So uh, again, sort of destiny, luck and, and passion. And um, I started teaching in a university in 1979 while I was still a doctoral student. I started at NYU in 83. Um, so yes, I've been at negotiation, teaching and research for a long time. What an amazing career. <laughs> what an amazing career, Steve. Uh, congratulations. You've, uh, you are an accomplished scholar and, uh, <clears throat> and a great, <clears throat> great professor. Um, when you look back at, uh, at this whole legacy of um, research on international negotiation, it's uh, um, decades of, um, of work, you and, uh, and many other colleagues um, uh, from the field. What do you think has changed? Uh, in the way we we look at uh, international negotiations and in the way we conduct them. Yes? Uh, do you see any major seismic shifts? Uh, uh, um, do you see any, any gradual changes, maybe evolutionary changes uh, in the field? Uh, what, is your, uh, what is your take on this? Um, we can look at both research and, and practice, and, and I would actually trace the... Uh, beginning of the field of, let's say, international business negotiation back to 1970, um, even before getting to yes, which was, you know, 1981, 11 years later, um, there was actually a course called international business negotiation uh, at, taught at NYU <clears throat> beginning in, I think, the spring of 1968. And originally it was introduced by two IB professors in strategy, I think. Um, As, as a way to, as a teaching tool, <laughs> not as a subject in and of itself, but as a way to, to get uh, <clears throat> sort of core concepts of international business across the students and to, to engage the students more and so on. Um, I don't know if they knew what would happen the 50, over the next 50 years, um, But it, it has been 50 years and, and uh, you know, you can think of the, the 50 years in, in blocks of 10 um, and I sort of identified five, five stages, but we can go to those uh, later. What's happened over those 50 years? Um, I think with respect to research, a couple of things. One is that uh, the whole idea of what international business negotiations are has actually been narrowed into a real focus on culture and i see culture as only a piece of the international business context if you think of the you know the classic uh, pestle or pest um, uh, concept of aspects of the inter international business environment or business environment culture is just a piece you know and there are a whole lot of other factors that can influence what goes on in negotiation, but uh, work on those other factors um, hasn't been nearly as strong uh, and it's actually diminished. I think it's, it was much stronger when in the 70s and 80s and over time it's culture that has sort of taken over. And that's a function of, you know, where the resources are, if they're champions, uh, research champions and, and, and so on. Um, the other thing is that Uh, I think there's been much more methodological rigor over time. Um, I mean, we started with uh, anecdotes 
about you know uh, how the nego Japanese negotiate or how the Chinese negotiate. And I think uh, thanks um, largely to Gene Brett at, at Northwestern, who got going in the field in the early 90s and had you know a slew of doctoral students and now her doctoral students have had doctoral students and so on you know think of uh, uh tinsley and lytle and then adair and so on uh, um, and they've been very well trained in research methods right especially sort of experimental uh, methods uh, and that's been good to see so that that uh, the conclusions they've reached are much more sort of credible or persuasive than some of the things that we saw uh, early on in the field. <clears throat> also, we've moved from one-off experiments, excuse me, I'm getting a bit hoarse already, <clears throat> to um, uh, multiple studies. So instead of a, a, an article that, that just focuses on the results of, of, of one negotiation experiment, I think some of the really interesting work has been um, on <clears throat> experiments that are linked. You know, something has come up in one experiment, then a second one has been done, or role play to pursue it, and, and so on. Um, so I think that's, that's sort of what I've seen change over time with respect to research. Um, with respect to practice, uh, I think just huge changes. I mean, think about access to information, right? Much more of it, information available for negotiators now, multiple sources. Of course, you've got the challenge of, of what's fake and, and, and what's valid. Multiple channels of communication. It doesn't have to be face-to-face -face, uh, or telephonic. Now it can be email or video. Uh, and there's a challenge of using which channel for what as part of your negotiations and so on. Um, I think there's much more familiarity with negotiation basics, you know, thanks to program on negotiation at Harvard, uh, among other groups. Uh, I remember hearing a story at one Harvard seminar where they were talking about two uh, presidents of two Latin American or South American countries, and they were they, they were sitting down to, to negotiate. I, I forget what the issue was, but oh, uh, one, one had sat down sort of at the head of the table and, and one sat down sort of um, 90 degrees to him as opposed to across the table, right? <laughs> and the person, the president who was already sitting said, no, don't pull that getting to yes stuff on me. I know exactly how that works. You know, and then I also heard a story about uh, Japanese negotiators in the 80s taking a lot of seminars on negotiation in the US. But it was in order to learn how Americans negotiate. It wasn't in order for them to use these techniques in their own negotiations as if they thought, you know, they needed help with their with their negotiation techniques. So there's there's a lot more sort of theory and information about techniques out there. Uh, outside pressures, audiences, you know, uh, you think of constituents, stakeholders, bad actors, I think it's much more challenging um, to hold uh, negotiations in secret and, and to really focus on the principles and get something done without all this sort of noise from the, from the outside. Um, 
And then I think a real shift in uh, geographical locations and sort of where the action is. I mean, in, in the 80s, you know, Japan was a much stronger economic player than it is uh, today. We've seen in the 90s, we saw the EU get a fair amount of attention in the triad the economies. And of course, when China opened up in 1979 and 80 and then just took off, um, it's become a, you know, the, the what is it, 800-pound <clears throat> gorilla, you know. Um, and you've got their Belt and Road uh, initiative and all the negotiations going on there. So there, there's a lot more uh, sort of a, a dispersion of negotiation, uh, international negotiation activity. It's not just the uh, uh, OECD countries anymore. And then you've got the BRICS, the Mint, you know, the emerging economies and so on. So just uh, uh, international negotiation going on in a lot more places than, than, than we used to uh, sort of pay attention to. So some of that's interesting, some of it's challenging, but I think it's definitely significantly different from, say, the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. Steve, um, <clears throat> I remember um, reading your paper, Negotiating with Romans, uh, at the very early ages, uh, stages, states of my, of my, of my PhD uh, program. Um, and you tackled also, like many others at that, at that point, the topic of culture. As yes, uh, Salacuse, just Salacuse, uh, um, <clears throat> um, um, demonstrated that uh, we negotiate differently. And there has been lots of research into uh, what those differences uh, uh, exactly are between the cultures that uh, of our interests. Yes? Uh, I've noticed that uh, in the last decade or two, this stream has become much weaker. Yeah. And I was wondering um, how you as an expert on international negotiation um, has seen the evol evolution in terms of our focus and interest on, uh, in culture. Yeah. Uh, has it changed in your opinion as well? Or um, is it, um, I don't know, maybe we're focusing on more specific things within culture or have we abandoned the topic at all? Uh, no, I don't think we've abandoned it at, at, at all. And, and it, if you allow me, I'll start with a really long or slow wind up to, to the, the heart of the question. Um, before negotiating with Romans, I actually wrote a, a piece on um, uh, cultural aspects of the negotiation process that, that vary with, with culture. And this was written in, in December of 84. Uh, and it was an attempt to um, provide a, a, an organizing framework for how, how to think about how culture affects negotiation. So I, I was at the time seeing a lot of work on negotiating with X, you know, with the Japanese or, or uh, what have you, but there wasn't a systematic approach. So what I did was take a look at the negotiation process and say, okay, which aspects of negotiation might vary significantly uh, with culture? And I came up with 12 different dimensions and then applied them to six cultures that I thought were, at least on the face of it, uh, fairly different. So uh, Chinese, French, uh, Japanese, Mexicans, Nigerians, and Saudis. Uh, and this this was a 50-page pa paper, so it's definitely not journal length. <laughs> there, there was no place to send it for publication, um, although it did get published by a German, German university in a book chapter, I think, 10 years later. 
but Salacuse's 10 dimensions come out of those 12 dimensions. <laughs> I don't know if he's cited, cited me in this paper. I don't think so, although he's certainly gotten a lot of credit for those 10 dimensions, but they're pretty much the ones that um, you know, I, I, I laid out. Um, and negotiating with Romans was uh, a few years later when I'd seen all this work on how uh, people in other cultures negotiate, but there seemed to be just a presumption that that's all we need to know. So once we know how, how they negotiate, we'll just negotiate their way, you know, negotiating with Romans. And when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Um, and I thought, wait a minute, there, there are other things that you can do. And that's when I laid out the five plus three uh, strategic options, right? <clears throat> Um, with respect to how much attention culture has gotten, um, it certainly got a, a lot of attention in the 80s and 90s from John Graham, among, among others. Um, but um, I think John was probably one of the, the first to really look at culture systematically, you know, uh, rigorously using empirical methods. But then uh, Jean Brett and her group got started in the early 90s. Um, <clears throat> and um, I actually found an article by one of your colleagues, Professor Schoen, I guess it is. Uh, S-H-O-E-N, I think. Does, does that ring a bell? Can you hear me, Remy? Yes, I can hear. Um, where, where he looked at 30 years and... and when did that, uh, it was an article published in uh, three, two or three years ago where he looked at, at uh, research on um, cultural aspects of negotiation and cited a, a number of studies. Um, I think there's still a fair amount of interest in, in cultural aspects of negotiation. Um, I can't provide you with sort of a, a count um, but I, I think there's a, a still a lot going on, um, and uh, certainly in that area more than sort of IB I uh, in in sort of the broad sense of the word uh, negotiation, um, and. Uh, I was, I'm just looking at my notes because I had written some uh, things about, uh, yeah, I'd, <clears throat> you asked whether interest had been, had, had, had diminished or decreased. I, and uh, uh, I think that's where the action still is, actually. Um, um, and and uh, one, one of the things that I'm, I'm I, I like about it is that I, I think others outside of the U.S. have picked up on it. So there's a fair amount of research going on uh, in Europe and, and, and elsewhere. So, uh, sorry, I think I've, I lost my train of thought, but your original question was, has, has culture, has interest in cultural aspects of negotiations diminished? And uh, um, my, my short answer is, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I think we're interest has diminished as in other aspects of international business negotiation, but, but culture seems to be moving right along. Some of the changes we've, we've moved from behavioral 
behavior into emotions and cognition, so mental models, okay. Um, I also talked earlier about moving from anecdotal into more rigorous, um, uh, rigorously studied um, topics uh, in culture. Uh, and um, certainly uh, an, in an interest in different cultures. So we started in the 80s when John Graham started, uh, clearly Japan was a focal point, right? I mean, the economy was firing on all cylinders. US Japan was, was a, a, a lot of, a big interest. Then the, the bubble burst in, in Japan and it, it sort of uh, fell flat from 1990 on. And at, at that point, China was picking up. So we shifted a lot of attention into uh, uh, research on negotiations involving the Chinese. And we're seeing some dispersion now beyond that. Um, you know, you can see pieces on negotiating with uh, Vietnamese or, or Thais and so on. Um, so I think it's been good that we've moved out into other areas. Let me stop there. <laughs> <laughs> That's it's been a it's been a heck of a journey, right? Uh, um, five decades of research on uh, on uh, on international negotiations um, and uh, the evolution of uh, the focus in terms of culture. <clears throat> so I as uh, I understand we're still interested, but we are interested in specific aspects of it. Yes, uh, I completely I completely share this view. I completely sure. sure, and, sure. And with any luck, we we'll started more. Again. You know, we'll, yes, we'll, exactly. We'll start to increase other other aspects of international, um, but but so far the uh, when you think about resources and who the resources researchers are and so on, um, Northwestern was just such a, a huge uh, center of research activity because of the faculty, the number of doctoral students they had. And now, sort of the generations that they they really fueled the emphasis on, on cultural aspects of negotiation. Yes, precisely, precisely. Um, I know, Steve, that you've also spent a fair share of your time working on mega simulations, um, on um, modeling complex negotiation processes, like for example, mergers or acquisitions of uh, huge multinational companies for example, from the automotive industries. Yeah? And I was wondering, what is, your, what is your favorite? What is the favorite negotiation that you've analyzed and converted uh, or not converted, maybe analyzed and uh, not converted into a mega simulation? Uh, and what can we learn from it? Yeah, mega simulations. Um, and I've got to give credit to NYU for um, stimulating my interest in that area. Um, so the first one uh, I worked on, which was already in place at NYU, and I just built on it, was uh, the GM and Toyota joint venture negotiations in, in the uh, uh, early 80s. And um, I'm not quite sure why NYU um, used these large-scale simulations. Uh, th this negotiation course that they had was a substitute for a master's thesis. So back, back in, in the late 60s, to get an MBA, you also had to do a thesis. And NYU innovated by saying, well, we think there are other, there's other work that students can do which would be equivalent to a thesis. 
So they set up a management decision lab, a sort of a consulting project, and they set up this thing called International Business Negotiation Exercise. It was an eight credit course, and we interviewed students. So it's highly selective. So we just put top students in there, which was great for the other students because they were negotiating against other high caliber students, right? Um, but in any event, GM Toyota was, was already in place when I uh, arrived there. Um, and I ended up uh, looking at IBM. And so that was a, a company to company joint venture negotiation, right? Um, and then I, and we also had uh, a union and I think a government rep as, as well. Um, I also looked at IBM's investment in Mexico when it decided to set up uh, a PC assembly plant there. Uh, and uh, more recently, when uh, uh, Renault uh, partnered with Nissan to set up a strategic alliance uh, between their two companies, I also looked at the when Mitterrand became uh, president of France and nationalized a whole bunch of companies, one of the sets of companies he wanted to nationalize was ITT subsidiaries. Uh, so he could create a national telecom champion in, in France. Um, and the, the company that was in France at the time was Compagnie Générale d'Electricité, CGE. He uh, uh, arranged for that company to take over the ITT subsidiaries, which formed Alcatel. Um, I never de fully developed that as, as a simulation, but uh, um, that is something I look at, looked into uh, in depth. Uh, and, and NYU sold me on these experiences, and I've done them ever since. Uh, that was in 1983, and <laughs> we're, we're in 2023, and I'm still doing them. Uh, and the reason I do them is because they put my students as close to the real action as I can get them when they're still in the classroom. So they're highly complex. They have to think about a lot of factors when they're negotiating. Generally, we do three hours on Friday night and five hours on Saturday. Um, and they prepare two weeks for two weeks before they go into them. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do afterwards um, in terms of analyses and so on. Um, but it's it's a really rich and memorable experience. So from a teaching point of view, it's worked out uh, really well. And um, I have worked the developed these as as uh, case studies. So I have interviewed uh, the actual negotiators in most of these uh, cases. Uh, I've learned something from every one of them. A favorite case? Well, Nissan and Renault were were pretty interesting to me because of my Japan experience, and I spent a fair amount of time in France. So the fact that I could look at a case involving two of my favorite countries or cultures was pretty special. But um, what I learned the most from was a, a couple of paired cases. So when I was researching the GM-Toyota negotiations, I learned that Toyota had negotiated with Ford before they went to GM over pretty much exactly the same thing, a joint venture to assemble cars in the US. And those negotiations 
which went on roughly the same amount of time as the GM Toyota negotiations, 13 months or so, failed, but were unsuccessful. And it was just really neat to have two real, not uh, fictitious or experimental negotiations that were so similar, but with opposite results, no agreement and agreement. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, interviewing uh, negotiators from all three companies um, and trying to figure out why was there no agreement in the Ford Toyota case and an agreement in the GM uh, uh, Toyota case. Um, and the, the takeaways, um, I think for one thing, the, the press generally settled on a single reason for failure or success. In the Ford Toyota case, well, <clears throat> they just couldn't agree on the product that they would build. Well, that was not even half the story. In the GM Toyota case, why, why did they reach agreement? Because their goals fit, you know. Toyota wanted to, to uh, access the U.S. market um, and was, was concerned about building uh, on its own. And GM could make a cheap uh, subcompact. Right. So <laughs> product fit. Well, that was just part of the reason. So <laughs> single factor explanations, especially for complex negotiations, are insufficient and misleading. Secondly, almost all complex negotiations have both agreement promoting factors as well as agreement impeding factors. Right. So be careful about assuming when there's been no agreement that just everything went kaplooey or, or was uh, you know, set up against uh, an agreement or assuming that in uh, the case of an agreement that everything was positive and of course they were going to reach an agreement. Just on, on the side, I remember uh, interviewing one of the GM negotiators who said basically at the end of the negotiations, he was so sick of negotiating that uh, once they'd reached an agreement, the GM team, you know, the, who knows what kind of budget they had. It had to be significant. They could have gone out to the most expensive restaurant in Tokyo to celebrate the, the conclusion of the negotiations. He said they were so sick of all this stuff that they went to McDonald's <laughs> to celebrate. Um, the, the influence of factors outside the negotiation room you know, uh, the reason why those two companies were negotiating at all is because the U.S. government had slapped a restraint or constraint on uh, Japanese imports into the U.S. So the only way that Japanese companies were going to be able to expand their market share was to actually build cars in the U.S. Um, and then the last point is not all no agreement outcomes are bad and not all agreement outcomes are good. Right. And some of these same lessons um, I also saw in Alcatel Lucent negotiations, which took place uh, the same same uh, companies, right? First time in 2001, no agreement. And then they negotiated again in 2006, right? And that worked, formed, formed Alcatel. Uh, and, and then ultimately Nokia bought, bought uh, uh, Alcatel. Um, but that's those, those pairwise comparisons of, of real negotiations have, have been uh, the most fascinating and informative for me. Thank you for sharing this, uh, Steve. I think um, 
I also agree that um, um, we're missing in our in our domain in the field of international negotiation. I wish we had more people like you who uh, who do the work in the field and study how real people resolve real negotiation problems. Uh, yes, I'm I'm a, I'm also a big fan of uh, of experimental research. Uh, uh, and other research methods as well, but uh, I wish we had more field studies uh, in our uh, in our domain. So we spent a lot of time speaking, talking about uh, the past, uh, the decades, <laughs> uh, uh, the decades of uh, research on international negotiation. Let's focus on the future now. If you if you if you um, um, if we look ahead. Yeah, uh, and uh, try to project the future of the field of international negotiation. What trends? What uh, um, what main directions? What um, what is that you see when it comes to international negotiations of the future? Once again, I'll, I'll divide my answer into research and, and practice. Uh, with respect to research, uh, in two thousand seven, I gave a a public lecture in Geneva uh, on the future of international business negotiation research. And I laid out four scenarios for the next 20 years. Right, we're almost there. <laughs> um, from, uh, but I, actually, what, just short of 20 years, it was out to 2025. So we're even closer than, than 2027. And the four scenarios were in the shadows, shining star, a thousand pieces, and extinct. So in you have to explain these. <laughs> I, I will. So in the shadows was basically general negotiation uh, would just take over, and international business would be a little piece in the corner, right? That that uh, it wouldn't really survive on its own. Or, or not survive, but it would survive only under the umbrella of negotiation, uh, broadly read. Um, Shining Star, uh, it would um, attract all sorts of, of clever and dedicated researchers and come up with great ideas, not just for uh, international business negotiation, but for negotiation, maybe even social science more generally. Um, a thousand pieces. Uh, a lot of uh, research projects would be undertaken, a lot of work would be published, but it would be just all over the place. And then extinct, uh, basically the, the flame would go out. Uh, no, no champions, no standard bearers, and you know, just sort of die a, a natural or uh, unfortunate death. Um, and at, at this point, um, I feel like uh, in the shadows is what's actually happened. <laughs> mm. um, you know, that it hasn't been able to carve out a uh, sort of niche um, that's, that's, that's widely known or recognized, um, that's really just seen as, as a piece of this broader field of, of, of negotiation. And, um, you know, you asked about culture losing momentum and while I sort of thought, well, I don't think culture has lost momentum. I do think international business more broadly, international business negotiation has lost momentum. Um, so I, I worry about <clears throat> what's going to happen uh, down the line because it, it takes 
researchers who are passionate about the uh, subject, but not just passionate about the, the subject in and of itself, but, but are willing to sort of organize a community and throw resources at it and really sort of champion the, the area. Um, and while I see a, a fair amount of work going on in various corners, um, I think that the, uh, the critical mass and sort of the, 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 the solid center just doesn't exist for international business negotiation the way I, I wish it uh, did. With respect to practice, um, I think there are a lot of tough negotiations ahead. I think the stakes are high. I mean, we're talking about the, the future of the planet when it comes to climate change and so on. The international order uh, that was established after World War II, I think, is, is under challenge. Um, there are uh, actors that are not content with uh, the rules and, and norms that uh, uh, exist. Uh, I think that a lot of different actors with different goals and, and values and sort of codes of conduct a fair amount of resentment and, and fear and pushback against globalization. They're even talking about deglobalization now, so sort of more withdrawal and, and concern about what's going on within borders, um, you know, self-sufficiency, um, sort of by American or by U.S. and in, in the U.S. Uh, um, and um, increasing pressure. Um, uh, against the status quo from, from China and India and, and non-OECD uh, countries. And then you've got bad actors and rogue actors, you know, states like North Korea and, and, and so on. Um, I think negotiating in, in that context or under those circumstances about those kinds of issues is going to be uh, really challenging. And, Steve, and I actually see, hope for the yeah. best. <laughs> I hope we'll negotiate yes. effectively and come up with some creative and really good solutions and agreements. So on the one hand, we have uh, we have challenges that are um, are coming uh, coming at us at a at the speed of a of a freight freight train uh, in a tunnel, uh, and on the other hand, we have less and less people dealing with the topic uh, in terms of research uh, the research focus. Uh, um, I hope uh, we're not uh, setting uh, setting it up for a, for a disaster because who, someone is has uh, someone has to deal with those challenges. Someone will have to solve them, right? And we need well educated uh, negotiators. Um, to have well educated negotiators, we need to have scientists, academics who deal with the topic of international negotiation. <clears throat> And I was wondering, Steve, uh, if we look at, let's pick one of the challenges that are coming at us uh, um, uh, unavoidably, and that is, uh, and that is uh, the climate change. Yes, it seems that uh, uh, that this uh, has become a pressing issue of the uttermost most imp uh, mo most importance uh, to all of us on this planet. Uh, but for one reason or another, uh, we cannot get a grip on it. Yes, uh, it seems that uh, those who uh, who have benefited uh, from polluting the environment do not have that much interest in uh, in compensating those who haven't yet. Yeah? And uh, you, as an as an expert on international negotiations, yeah, do you have a solution? Uh, do you have a set of uh, set of advice? Do you have uh, do you have uh, a remedy uh, for this uh, for this problem? How can we avoid a climate disaster? 
You set me up. <laughs> you as an expert, what's, what's your advice? <laughs> um, I, I, I agree with you. It's going to be really challenging. I mean, I, you, you think of the, the tragedy of the commons, right? Every, everyone wants to benefit from the commons, but uh, when it comes to, to taking care of it or assuming some of the costs for uh, restoring it or keeping it healthy, people step back. Um, or, or actors step step back, and and then the 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 quality of the commons deteriorates. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the the climate is a uh, climate change, and just that whole area is is a, a real challenge. As, as I mentioned to you uh, before we started, um, I think it it uh, is an extreme and really. Uh, uh, amazing example, troubling as well, of, of the tension between uh, joint gain or community benefit and individual gain. Yes. You know, um, you were talking about the the, the resentment um, or or the the willingness to assign blame. You know, the economies that are are developing now. And being asked to bear burdens for costs that they think were incurred by the, the developed countries or the OECD countries, and and you know not seeing uh, how that's fair to them. Um, I, I think this is the the negotiations are going to be uh, really tough, and um, I'm reluctant when when it comes to uh, negotiations like this, or actually any real negotiation, to sort of pass on advice when I don't know enough about the the uh, the subject itself. I think it's really important when it comes if you're going to go beyond just sort of general rules of thumb and even even sort of trite maxims or something about negotiation and, and provide some real value add. I, I think it's incumbent on on a person as a as an expert or as, as an advisor to really know the subject matter, um, and uh, I, I this is an area that I certainly don't know enough about to be you know offering <laughs> my two cents on. <laughs> Steve, um, how about advice for our for the participants of the uh, in the negotiation challenge? This is our negotiation competition, which is uh, going on as we speak. Uh, we just had our last qualification round, and uh, we will uh, hold a debrief and announce the finalists uh, tomorrow. Yes, uh, and I was wondering uh, whether uh, what what would you what would you tell them? Those are as aspiring young uh, graduate students, yeah. mostly graduate students, uh, very passionate about the subject matter. Yes, uh, preparing for our comp some of them preparing for our competition since uh, October. Yes, have been uh, seriously uh, seriously brushing up, developing their skills prior to the competition, and I was wondering. If there is someone who should who could uh, whose advice they should take, it's definitely you. So, Steve, the floor is yours. Remy, you're setting me up again. <laughs> well, That's my role here. First off, I, I want to say that I, I think what what you put you and your colleagues have put together is is, is fantastic. Um, so, kudos for that, and I hope uh, you've got a long future ahead of you with with this uh, undertaking. Um, I, I would give, uh, I guess, three or four um, 
suggestions, um, general suggestions. Um, <clears throat> the, the first is to, to uh, think hard about what you really want before you enter the negotiations. What do you want to accomplish? What are, what are your interests? What are uh, sort of your, your concrete goals? And I, I think that um, that, that calls for some hard thinking. I mean, thinking about the different possible options and, and, and your preferences. And I, don't, I think uh, not enough young negotiators think through in advance you know, uh, what their preferences are. They think of a number of possibilities, but then they don't, they don't ask themselves, do I prefer for X over Y or Y over X? Um, so I, I, I think that's, that's key. And along with that, doing your homework. So gathering information um, about your, your own team and not just your in interests, but your resources. So it's not just what you can pull out or get out of a negotiation, but what you can contribute. And think also about the interests and resources of your uh, your counterparts. All right. Um, so thinking hard about what it is you want to accomplish and doing your homework. That's sort of step one. Step step two, and and they're not necessarily in, in sequence here, even though I'm calling them steps. Um, consider your counterparts' perspective. So get out of your own head and try to look at the the conflict. The the uh, subject matter from the perspective of the people that you're going to be negotiating with. How would, how do they look at the subject? What do you think they want out of it? What are they likely to do uh, in, in the negotiations? Um, <clears throat> third, take the initiative to set the agenda and to organize the negotiation process. Over the years, I found so many students who, especially early in the semester, sort of show up for the negotiations and expect something to happen to them. <laughs> and then they realize, oh, it's up to you, <laughs> which is part of the beauty of negotiation, right? That you're, you're not entering into a, a fixed or already determined game where there are certain rules and regulations. You say, as, as the disputants or as the, the parties to the conflict, the beauty of negotiation as opposed to adjudication or arbitration is that it's up to you, the parties, to set up the, the rules, <laughs> you know, when you're going to meet, what you're going to meet about, how long you're going to meet, and, and so on, okay? Um, so, again, oftentimes the other side may be thinking the same thing. Well, we'll just show up and things will happen. So why not take the initiative to um, set things up your, yourself? Right, and and oftentimes you can get some advantage to doing that. It's not necessarily an unfair advantage. It's just sort of taking the initiative to to be uh, proactive. Um, and then finally, once you get going in the negotiations, pay attention to the action reaction <clears throat> sort of dynamics and what's going on. And every once in a while, step back and 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 see what's going on and assess whether it's working or not. Um, one of the frameworks that I came up with, analytic frameworks that I came up with uh, years ago when I was working on the IBM Mexico case, actually, it was called Relationships, Behaviors, and Conditions. And if, if you think of it in, a, in this sort of simplest form with relationships up at the top and negotiation is about <clears throat> initiating or modifying a relationship, right? A, a, a connection. 
and what what determines what the what those relationships uh, become or what they're like well the behavior of the parties and influencing conditions and if you just analyze what's going on during negotiation in terms of those three sort of components i think it helps you to sort out uh, where you are in the process and how how whether you're on on a, a, a good path or one that needs to be uh, uh, modified know what you want <clears throat> think about the per counterpart's perspective um, take the initiative when it comes to organizing and shaping the process and uh, monitor it sort of track how things are going as you're negotiating that sounds great, Steve. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. My last, very last question is always about great negotiators. Yes, uh, greatness, great negotiators, mediators, uh, whichever domain you would like, uh, you would prefer to choose. Who comes to your mind? Contemporary, historical, doesn't matter. One of my mentors uh, was uh, a U.S. ambassador by the name of John McDonald. Uh, and he had been appointed ambassador, uh, that rank, not to a country, but to conferences like the uh, International Labor Organization and so on. Um, and he was appointed um, twice by, by both a Republican president and by a Democratic president to uh, lead the, the U.S. delegations to these large conferences. And he always talked about um, you might have a hundred parties to the to the negotiation, but coming up with sort of a, a small or working group where you could actually get something done, right? So so breaking it down into something feasible or or, or manageable, working with that, and then sort of disseminating or getting feedback uh, from from um, uh, the, the rest of the parties. Um, and, and I thought that was just a, a really um, useful technique. I, I think I've gotten tips from everyone that I've, uh, whose autobiography or uh, accounts I've read. Um, uh, Richard Holbrook to, to End War. That was a, a, a book that I enjoyed uh, thoroughly. And, and the quote that I pulled from it, which I think is is uh, useful for all of us to remember when we're negotiating is the following. The negotiations were simultaneously cerebral and physical, abstract and personal, something like a combination of chess and mountain climbing. <laughs> so <clears throat> when I'm talking to my students about preparing for negotiation, I talk about planning, you know, goal setting and all that sort of stuff. But I also use the word preparing in a much broader sense get a good night's sleep, eat, <laughs> you know, have fuel in your body. Uh, think about all that goes into your performing well in a negotiation, because remember, it's, it's got all these demands on you. They're both uh, intellectual or, or, or sort of cognitive, but also physical. They can be exhausting. I remember one of the labor mediators that I followed would often work through the night on negotiations, right? They'd have some contract deadline that they, they had to meet. And uh, one of his tricks was to always pack a, a shirt. And just before breakfast, after they'd stayed up all night, he'd, he'd excuse himself, head to his hotel room, take a shower and put on a fresh shirt, right? <laughs> 
he was thinking about the physical demands and and how they might influence negatively right his his uh his effectiveness as a mediator as a, as a participant in the negotiation so um that quote from Holbrook, and and granted the Bosn uh, Dayton Accords were sort of not your typical um, international negotiation, but that quote I think just really reminded me that this this uh, activity called negotiation is as wonderful as it is, and as as you know the, the great agreements that can come out of it, the, the value that can be created. Um, are often very demanding, and and we need to think about uh, all those demands and be be ready to to meet them. Um, other than that, you know, program on negotiation. Jim Sabanius has a series of videos, uh, often <clears throat> with former U.S. secretaries of state who who pass on their gems from from their experiences. Um, Margaret McMillan's Paris 1919 was a great book that talked about. Uh, those negotiations after World War I with uh, Wilson and uh, George, Lloyd George and Clemenceau. There's a, a Netflix movie called Sergio. I don't know if you've heard about it, but uh, um, Sergio, it was uh, the, the protagonist. The, the film is about a, a UN official who was with the, the High Commission for Refugees, um, Sergio Vieira de, de Melo, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correct, uh, but it was based on a book by Samantha Powers, a biography about him called Chasing the Flame and the no negotiations he did in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge, in Bosnia, in the Middle East, uh, and, and so on. But um, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the diplomats or politicians can talk about their negotiations in ways that businessmen in, in proprietary or private negotiations cannot. So I've, I've learned a lot, especially from statesmen like that when it comes to international negotiation and generally, you know, something from everyone that I've, I've, I've read. Thank you so much, uh, Steve, for sharing your thoughts uh, on greatness uh, in negotiation. Um, and we are very thankful to have uh, learned so much from you. Uh, not only today, but not only today, but also um, um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the past. And we are also looking forward to uh, learning from you in the future. And so, to sum it up, nego international negotiation is uh, more important than ever now. We have lots of challenges to solve, and those challenges are unlikely to be solved in any other way than through negotiation. And on the other hand, we need smart negotiators who are skilled and trained uh, by those who have passion for the topic, for the topic of international negotiation. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today and until next time on the podcast on negotiation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs>